It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. This show is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you use. And you can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name's Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by Michael Steindl and Natalie Bucknall. Welcome, guys. Hello, Kay. Hi, Kay. Hi, Natalie. Today we have a great opportunity to follow up an earlier discussion with academic and activist Mark Hudson. Born and bred in Australia, Mark is now studying responses to the coal industry to climate change at the University of Manchester. When we last spoke, we spent a lot of time discussing the fossil fuel industry and international negotiations on climate change. Towards the end of the show, we got onto the topic of activism, but ran out of time to do it justice. But we're really fortunate today to have another chance to talk to Mark about this topic. Hi Mark, welcome back. Hello, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. So Mark, on this show we really like to get a handle on how things work. Often this is from a technology perspective, but it's also really important to understand the social, commercial and political machinations around climate change. So it's terrific that you've been able to come back and throw some light on the topic of activism with us. So let's start by clarifying your credentials. What experience do you have in activism? Uh, Yes, I I was about to put in a disclaimer that I have a lot more failures to my name than successes. (laughs) You learn a lot from failures. (laughs) (laughs) I would argue that I've tried to reflect on both successes and failures and look at other people's successes and failures, and that's the extent of my expertise. Um, I was fortunate in that I went to a very... I had two two pieces of good luck. When I was young, my parents had this sort of proverbial bush block and I was sent out to play and not get bitten by a snake and come back when I was hungry. <laughs> and the evidence shows that the common feature that environmental activists have is that they had unstructured play in natural settings before the age of 11, what Ooh. the academic call this significant life experiences. Mm-hmm. That's um, uncanny. Yeah, it's really interesting research that was done, I think, in Taiwan, because you had all of these environmental activists from different class, um, gender, age, backgrounds, but the, what the researchers found was that that was the common feature among all of them. Um, The other piece of luck I had is I went to a really posh school, which was really, um, I won't mention its name, but it's one of the posh ones in Adelaide. And it was all boys and it was every bit as sort of racist and sexist and homophobic as you'd expect a school in the 1980s to be. And that taught me that you can and must sort of speak out when stupid things are being said by by people in positions of authority. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I got lucky because it was the late, it was the, it was the 80s, and so I was inspired by the Franklin Dam campaigns. Obviously, I was oh, yes. at time. Um, and then the wave of activism around green issues in the late 80s. 
Um, and I, I was never a full-on greenie then. I was just planting trees, basically. But then um, a little later on in life, I became an aid worker in Mozambique and Angola, and that was an education. Mm-hmm. So was that and with your physio work, work, Mark? Sorry, second. Was that as a physio at that point? No, no, but it was why I became a physio. I was in, in Angola. They had a huge problem with landmines, most of them planted by the South Africans. And what happens with landmines is I think about a third of the people die and then two-thirds are left alive but usually missing a lower limb. And so there were a lot of amputees. And while I was an aid worker in Mozambique, uh, sorry, in Angola, that's when I got the idea, the first glimmer to become a physio specialising in amputees. Um, And then after that, when I was in England, I got involved in uh, the Newberry Bypass campaign in sort of 1996, where we were trying to stop a a bypass being built. And we lost that battle, but we sort of won the wider war, which was to stop the road building program that Thatcher had initiated and that John Major was continuing. Um, And then I I stayed involved and I was involved in this thing called Earth First, which was nonviolent direct action sort of on environmental and social justice grounds. Then I dropped out for a bit because I had a full-time job and I couldn't afford to get arrested. uh, And I was doing um, sort of more mainstream NGO charity work. And then, long story short, in 2006, I was heavily involved in the first climate camp. Um, There were a series of them, and some happened in Newcastle or in New South Wales as well, in Australia, I know. And then... By early 2007, I was very, very disenchanted with the way that Climate Camp worked. It it had a rhetoric of um, non-hierarchical working and um, sort of open decision-making, but the truth was much more grimy, and I'd use the word dishonest than that. And I then turned to local activism, and I set up something called Manchester Climate Forum, and then I set up a newsletter called Manchester Climate Fortnightly, which tried to focus on what our local council was doing, because it was easy to get information about national and international climate action, and literally impossible to get information about local climate action. And then I sort of stayed involved with that local side of things ever since then, and I've been quite, quite suspicious of national and international action because I I think that um, it becomes a a stage for some... Well, anyway, we could go into that. So that's my activist background. There are other things that I've left out, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that answer your question? It certainly does. (laughs) Just on your comment on failures there, Mark, um, that you opened with, um, we're looking for our next Churchill in the the climate campaigns and, and Churchill says that uh, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's very important to keep... I mean, Churchill famously gave that his entire speech. He stood up and said, never give up, never give up, never give up. I would argue, though, that if you go from failure to failure and it's the same failure, it's the same set of mistakes, then you're not helping anyone yep. and people who are watching you can get disheartened. That, that's when you get um, to Einstein's quote, isn't it, <laughs> of doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Is the definition of insanity. Yes. Absolutely it is, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Mark, you're, you're pretty cynical about some of the trends you see at times among climate activists. I am. What, is, what are some of the limitations you see of the typical models that, that we've adopted 
Okay, so let's start with the big marches and demonstrations, um, or even the small ones. There's just been one in uh, Manchester in England, and only two and a half thousand people turned up. And I would argue that that demonstrates the weakness of a movement rather than its strength. I'm sure the people who were on the march had a very good time and got to meet up with some old friends and got to feel virtuous. But marches do not build social movements. The marches appeal to a pretty small number of the population. And if you do go along to a march, you tend to think, well, I've done my bit. Now it's up to the organisers of the, the march to do their bit and the politicians to do their bit. And this isn't a new observation. Do you remember the Palm Sunday marches in the 1980s? Yep. So I, um, I was inspired by them, but I've just read a book by Verity Bergman, which I would recommend called, I think it's called Power and Protest. It's the first one she did. I think it's based on a PhD. And she alludes to the fact that in the middle of the 1980s, you know, the, these debates were happening about whether a big annual march is a good use of people's uh, organizers' time. And if it doesn't actually create opportunities for people to do their one once a year tokenistic thing and then feel that they've done their bit. Mm -hmm. And I marches have many, many problems, but we never really talk about them. And if you do raise the question, people shoot back at you, well, what's your alternative then? And then you get into a long discussion about all the things that could be done with the same amount of time and energy, and people just go, oh, well, that's not practical. It's and, interesting, um, in, during the Vietnam War, there were marches, you know, with well over 100,000 people attending, and they definitely did appear to have an effect but since then, yeah, I mean, even though you've got I'm, the social media to, to, to get people organised, you just don't get the turnout that you used to. You don't get the turnout, and I think there's a whole host of reasons. Um, I think the two, the, or the big Vietnam moratoria marches in sort of Sydney and Canberra and um, especially Melbourne were very important. I, I'd say there's a, a number of factors here. The media have become cynical about marches and, and don't report them. Um, my mum was a journo at the time, and she, we were just discussing this earlier today. I also think that the failure to stop the Iraq war in 2003 sent a message to a lot of people that marching is pointless. Mm. Um, now, I, I actually think that the Iraq war in 2003 would have been a lot worse if it hadn't been for all the marches and demonstrations. I can't prove it, mm. but it's not, even if I'm right, it's not an argument that appeals to many people. Mm. So you can't, you can't get the numbers out. And even if you do, it's, it's not really a news story. You know, it's 10,000 people marching down a the street. There might be some pictures because someone has done a very clever paper mache Godzilla mm. or, or something else. But it's not big news mm. in so the way Vietnam ones were. Yeah, besides the marches, what other aspects are, um, do you think we need to rethink? Okay, um, I think it's really nitty-gritty. I think it's when, when a new person comes to a group meeting, how are they treated? And my experience in Australia in 2011, I went to a bunch of different groups um, meetings and I was either sort of ignored or regarded with suspicion perhaps because I speak with an English accent but I, I think what happens is that the organizers of meetings and their friends forget how scary it can be to go to the business meeting of a group whether it's Green Party or Friends of the Earth or whatever it's called and not know anyone 
And I think there are a series of really simple things that could be done at the beginning of meetings, sort of having not just a name go round because that's really tokenistic, but actually have people pair off and talk to someone that they don't know very well, give them a chance to ask questions if they've never been before, give everyone name badges so that everyone knows each other's name. And the, the people who are facilitating the meeting should be careful not to exclude new people by simply going, oh, yeah, we'll hear from Bob, we'll hear from Jane, we'll hear from you, and we'll hear from Don over there. And I know that sounds really trivial, but these little micro things matter. I mean, you know about racism and the idea of microaggressions? Mm. When, um, when no. people are sort of on the receiving end of a snub... And it, and it really knocks them back on their heels. And I think in, in meetings, that's what happens to new people who've not been involved before. I'm, I'm pleased to say that all my experience in Melbourne over many groups, that's not happening. They are doing the sort of things you're recommending. A no, any others? Fantastic. Any others? I mean, it didn't happen Sorry. in the – I think I went to two or three meetings in Melbourne, but this was five years ago. Mm -hmm. I'll, give you, I'll give you another example from meetings, but this is from meetings when there's a um, – sort of a guest speaker, and then it's followed by the Q&A. So I don't know what it's like so much in Australia, but in England, when, they, when the facilitator or the chair of the meeting says, right, we've got plenty of time for questions, who's got a question? There's usually four or five hands shoot up, and it's usually old white men, and they've not really got questions, they've got mini speeches that they're going to give. And then <laughs> mm -hmm. after that's all been dealt with, a few women's hands sort of tentatively creep up mm -hmm. because they've realised that their questions were just as good. But by then, the time for the meeting is over. Does does that happen in Australia? Oh, that does resonate a bit. Definitely. <laughs> well, again, many of the ones I've been to have actively sought women question, women's okay. questions. In but fact, last they, night. they actually do that at the end of, as you say, when time's run out. They say, oh, yes, well, yeah. let's hear from a woman. And also, actively seeking women out puts additional pressure on them because mm. then they're not just representing themselves. They're representing all womankind. Mm. Yep. And women is not the only category of people who are being snubbed as yep. well. It's new people, it's young people, it's particularly old people, etc. So one of my tweaks that I do whenever I'm chairing a meeting is I say, right, before we go to the Q&A, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and just discuss for one minute what you thought of what you've heard from the speaker. And if you've got a question that you'd like to ask, get some feedback on it from the other person and get it honed down to two or three sentences and then we'll see a show of hands mm -hmm. and then you get everyone to put their hand up and of course you engineer it so that three of the first four questions are from women mm. or from whichever ever other category you feel is sort of underrepresented Excellent. and that it means that the person's had feedback on the quality of their question they've had help honing it and it just creates a slightly different dynamic and you usually get better questions as well mm. and the people are much more confident presenting them People are more confident presenting them because they've had a chance to yeah. rehearse it down to two sentences and get someone helping them. Yeah. And now that's a really simple little way of tweaking an existing format. I personally don't like the sort of the set piece, we've got an invited speaker or, or three invited speakers and then we'll have a QA. and I, I, I think it's not a particularly good way of um, building connections between people and giving them information especially since we live in the 21st century where there's sort of YouTube and websites. But it's, it's one of those sort of legacy formats that has other things going for it, so it persists. 
So what about, you've talked a bit about the dynamics within the groups, Mark. Mm. What about, you know, what groups are setting out to achieve and, and how they're going about that, uh, how they're trying to influence things? Do you, do you have any insights yeah. for us about I, that? I want to I go back to that disclaimer at the beginning. I'm, I know <laughs> I'm, I'm coming across sounding really sort of arrogant and sneery, but I, I just ha- I do have a lot of sympathy for groups tra- trying to achieve anything. I mean... We in Manchester succeeded in getting our local council to make a series of promises about climate change, and then we failed in getting them to keep those promises. And the situation in Australia, it's its really, really difficult, especially from a climate perspective, because, of course, climate policy is at a federal level. Energy policy is somewhere in between, and the distances are so vast. So if you've got a local group, I mean, you know, you can do letter-writing campaigns, you can do turning up at the offices of the MP when they usually they're not there. And it's very hard to sustain momentum. It's very hard to claim a victory because they'll never let you know that your pressure was the thing that won. And, you know, then there's the option of having annual marches. Well, we've already talked about that. I think the crucial thing is that people need to try to set achievable goals, but they also need to acknowledge that this is a marathon, not a sprint. If you achieve your goal in three months, your goal probably wasn't tough enough. And the, the, what you've achieved is probably something that's so vague that the politician can wiggle out of it. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, certainly to, um, to so, some extent. So, so, so I, I, I think it, we need to, we, when we talk about group, groups functioning, I think we need to look at the group dynamics within a group about who has the power and who has the control. Are you guys familiar with a, an essay called The Tyranny of Structuralistness? No, no. we haven't no. come across that. So it's a, it's a by um, a woman, and I say that because it's important, called Joe Freeman. And what happened, This she was involved in the early days of second wave feminism when it was called Women's Liberation, and they were doing consciousness-raising groups, you know, learning about the mechanics of patriarchy, stuff that we all take you know without thinking about now but that's because women like that were thinking really hard about how patriarchy works and one of the things that these women's groups decided very early on was that they weren't going to have a chair a secretary and a treasurer and an you know formal agendas and minutes and all of that because they regarded that as intensely hierarchical and patriarchal and what joe freeman wrote after a couple of years, was that, you know, there are other forms of power. And just because you're all sitting in a circle and nobody is the official chairman doesn't mean that someone's not in control and not able to keep items off the agenda, you know, the the, the discussion, rather. Um, it might be the person who has the most money and who is hosting the event. It might be the one who's friends with the person who has the printer. It might be the one who owns a van that means everyone can get to a protest or not. It might be the one who's the best looking. There are all sorts of invisible forms of power besides being in the chair or being the secretary. And what Joe Freeman said is that in the absence of a formal structure, it can be very hard to challenge that power because it's invisible. Does that make sense? Mm. Yes, very well explained. So and what's the, the answer? Is, <laughs> that article occasionally gets cited, but no one seems to read it and no one seems to think it applies to them and their group. <laughs> of course not. And what you have is you have this really charismatic person who 
holds the reins of invisible power and then after two or three years they get bored or they burn out or they alienate a lot of other people and the group falls apart mm. yeah that sounds familiar yeah yeah no, no, what is the answer to that though Mark? People, people go yeah everyone has at least one or two sometimes dozens of stories like that the trouble is that we tend to blame another individual for being a, a control freak or not delegating or whatever what we don't do is look at it in the round and say this has been going on for at least 50 years and so, then what do you do about it name it okay name it and crucially make sure that the skills and knowledge get deliberately built up among different people and shared around because that also solves one of your other problems of why people leave and they leave because they're not in my opinion i mean there are different reasons why people leave but one of them is that they're not learning anything so if only one person knows how to build the website or only one person knows how to sort of do the accounting or you know pick a skill then you have what's called in corporate world a single point of failure and if the person who does that burns out or leaves or is too busy or turns out to have been an undercover cop and you know, this happened a lot in <laughs> England, then you have a real problem. Whereas if you do a skills and knowledge audit of, of what skills your group needs to have to function and who has what skills to what level, then you can quickly identify, wow, we've only got one person who can do the website. So we need to make sure that two or three other people at least learn the basics so that if our single point of failure fails we're, we're not scuppered mm. we, we don't have a situation where the website only gets updated every six months does that make sense it does make sense but it also means that you do have to have some structure within the group for that to occur in the first place so you know the anarchy symbol the a with the circle around it yes. that circle is not a circle it's the letter o it stands for organize and the problem is that we've regarded hierarchy and organizing as synonyms. They're not. They overlap, but it is possible, I believe, to organize without having a permanent boss, elected or unelected. But you need to have open discussion about um, who has the most time, who currently has the most skills, um, what the group wants to achieve, what skills the group needs to achieve those things, how to bring in new people because groups what always happens is that people burn out people get jobs which mean they have to work um longer hours elsewhere or people move into state whatever things and are dynamic inflow of new people your group will shrink it won't be able to do some of the things it used to be able to do everyone will get demoralized and when a group is demoralized, new people don't want to get involved because if they come into a room and everyone's sort of unhappy to be there and scowling and talking about how the last event went really badly, they're not going to get involved, are they? No, not, not keen at all. No. Not keen at all. So, so it's a matter so, of addressing it virtually at every meeting, is it? Just bringing that up and um, yeah, making it obvious well, to the group. I, I think we so need to be a are... lot more clued in to the emotions that people are feeling, and especially with climate change. I think I, when, I, when I was in Sydney, I saw this thing about some West Connex. Um, I think they're trying to build a freeway or whatever. And there's, yeah. there's always groups that form to oppose individual things, like the Newbury Bypass that I mentioned 20 years ago. And you see, you can imagine winning those battles... You can imagine 
that the opposition political party might flip in the way that they have in South Australia on the question of nuclear waste dump. So if it is a particular single issue, you can imagine winning. But if it's climate change, well, let's be frank, it doesn't look good for us, does it? Mm-hmm. And we underestimate the psychic cost that thinking about climate change and um, campaigning on climate change has on people. It makes them miserable, by and large. Oh, yes. So so people get involved in groups to share the misery and hopefully overcome it. But unless the group is willing and able to do joyful things with each other, then people leave. Mm. So, the, so just to finish off very quickly on that point, one of the things I've been massively impressed with in um, Adelaide is a group called Rise Up Singing. And they're not the, the people who invented this, but it's just basically a bunch of people with uh, guitars and, and good singing voices, or even mediocre singing voices, but certainly oh. better than mine, who turn up at demonstrations and sing some songs, songs that everyone's familiar with, but also songs that they've written themselves. And it just changes the dynamic from some idiot with a megaphone denouncing capitalism, which I mean, obviously we need to denounce capitalism, but to some to singing and people feeling good in each other's company and i i just think they're great and i think you know it's something that should happen a lot more well that was similar to um the protest up in newcastle this year and i think every year um where they organize thousands of people to um protest about the coals because it's it's the largest coal export absolutely and and then they have a party afterwards on the beach Yes, yes, absolutely. Look after, you know, make sure that you have as good a time as you can within reason. Um, ab- absolutely. Abs- it's The thing is, not everyone is a natural extrovert and not everyone will stick or- can stick around for the party on the beach afterwards. And this, is, this would be one of my other critiques of meetings is that often people think, oh, well, you know, if there's been a difficulty, we can talk about it in the pub afterwards. But what that excludes is anyone who has to leave the meeting. Say the meeting's scheduled to last from 7 till 8.30 or 7 till 9. But then a lot of people have got, you know, long bus rides or tram rides home. They've got to go early to go to work. They've got childcare that they've organised. They've not got enough money to go to the pub. And so what you get is... um, a split between the people who go off somewhere else to have a good time afterwards and the ones who, for whatever reason, can't. And that creates um, a quite... An in-and-out crowd. Yeah. group. Yeah. So what, what have, from what you've seen, Mark, um, what's a really sustainable activist group looking like? What- yeah, I was afraid you'd ask that question. <laughs> you put it on the email list and I thought, I hope we don't get to that one. Um <laughs> It's a two-edged sword, because by sustainable... So I've got in my head a group in Manchester that's been going for 25, 30 years, but what happens is it's a core of people who hang out together and are friends besides, and it's a really low, unimaginative, unfriendly amount of activity, but it's sustainable because they've been doing it for 30 years. Right. (laughs) 
Do you see what I'm saying there? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think through examples of what I've seen and, you know, I guess in Australia, the or in Victoria at least, the Country Fire Authority's been a topical one, but that's been a volunteer organisation that's been around a long time. You know, they must be doing some yeah. of those things right. But I guess it's very action-oriented and you get those little wins all the time, like you mentioned. You get those little wins all the time because, you know, you, you're saving someone's property or saving someone's life. Um, you have sort of you're not being hassled by the police or threatened with lawsuits by developers i mean you know let's there are huge costs attached to the sorts of activism that is trying to slow down the destruction of the planet so maybe we have to accept that you know groups have a shelf life of hopefully more than 18 months and hope maybe all we can achieve is is making the activism um sustainable for say five years and crucially making sure that the people involved in those groups don't become so burnt out and cynical that they're not available two or three years later when another good opportunity comes up does that make sense that they're building on their skills that they can use those to leapfrog into the next there are three things that are really crucial You, you need to build people's skills so that they know how to you know um negotiate with the police at a demonstration or mediate conflict between two people or design a meeting. And by design a meeting, I mean make sure that it creates opportunities for everyone to be involved. I think that's a massively underrated skill. Then you've got the knowledge side of things. And the way I always think of that is if you're at the bus stop reading a book about climate change, for example, and the person next to you looks at it and says, oh, well, Alan Jones says it's not happening. And then the three other people at the bus stop think, oh, there's going to be a fight. Then you in sort of five minutes while the bus is about to come can explain that why Alan Jones is wrong and do it in a a way with humour and compassion that makes the other people think, you know what, Alan Jones is a knob. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a certain amount of knowledge that you need to be able to do that. And then the third thing is to make sure that people have friendly relationships with other people in the group and beyond the group and know what skills and talents those people have so that when they're involved in a different group two years, three years, five years down the road, they can go, oh, yeah, but so-and-so knows how to do that. I'll give them a call. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the the network's grown as well. Network grows. The network grows. So maybe when we're talking about sustainable activism – we're not looking at an individual group lasting forever because they do ossify, they do become a closed friendship clique, it seems. What we're looking at is people who've become activists and maybe they've got less time now but they'll have more time in the future when the kids have left school or when their superannuation packages come in or or whatever. And, And they are embedded in a network of people. That, to me, would be sustainable activism, but it's not... It would be hard to measure because you wouldn't have one group that had been going for 10 years and had put out 20 newsletters and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I hadn't considered it before as those those little units of activism versus a particular organisation having constant success. Um, That aspect that you're saying about the networking, um, what... um, you know, that leads me to the question of how different organisations work together. Um, we, we don't have a lot more time, but it, have you got a few words to share with us about that? Yeah, I think the, tr- the, the way network, the way organisations usually work together on this is the infamous and dreaded skills share day, 
where there might be sort of 20 sessions and you can come along and spend the whole day learning about issue X or Y or Z. And unfortunately, those tend not to be workshops. They tend to be lectures with a Q&A afterwards. And it's an opportunity for individual groups to sort of publicize themselves and hopefully pick up any new people who've drifted in and, and drag them into their particular group. So you get lots of jostling and tussling for who's going to be doing which workshop. Does that make sense? Yes, you can easily see how that can happen. And, so, and you see the same thing happen on marches about whose organisation is going to go first on the logo and who's going to be the press officer and who's going to put out the press release and, and it becomes exhausting. Um, I don't really have an answer to that. I mean, I, I've given up thinking in in positive terms about marches because I think they're what I call a dead, a zombie repertoire. You know, we keep doing it, but it, it, it doesn't really meet the movement's needs. It meets the needs of individuals and organisations within the movement. It meets their ego needs. Um, I think what we need to do is teach individuals within a group that if the group is not functioning, they should vote with their feet and find a different group. Mark, in your thinking about um, activism, in particular on the climate issue, have you given much thought to the concept of a wicked problem and how that applies? Yeah. I mean, climate. I've, I actually made a video about wicked problems and I used that song, um, the Chris Isaac song, you know, it's a wicked dream or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so just for your viewers who don't know what a wicked problem is, it's a concept that was developed by Ravetz and Rantovitz, I think, in the mid-70s. That, and it says a problem where, where there's no clear solution and people even can't even agree on what the shape of the problem is. Mm-hmm. So for some people, climate change is a techn- technical, technological issue. We simply have to stop burning um, coal and oil and gas to get electricity. If we do that, everything's fine. For other people, it's a symptom of a deeper spiritual crisis. For other people, it's a geopolitical issue about you know Russia versus America versus China. So to come back to something I said earlier, it seems insoluble. Whether it's a wicked problem or a super wicked problem or something else, the fact is we haven't acted in the last 30 years except to make the problem worse. I mean, we got our first... The CSIRO was issuing serious warnings to elite Australian policymakers in 1986, mm. and then it burst onto the global scene in 1988, and we've done nothing. I think what you're trying to say by thought about wicked problem is, are we going to get out of it? And I don't think we are, and I think that makes it even harder to campaign on it. I, I think even introducing the concept of a wicked problem to people is actually helpful because okay. it helps them realise why they're perhaps finding it so hard to act on it. Yeah. So they start to think about how they're thinking. Um, and you just mentioned in passing there the concept of a super wicked problem and it might be worth just mentioning that that, that adds four more dimensions to a wicked problem and they are that time is running out, which is yep. certainly true, that there's no central authority, which you sort of mentioned passing, that it goes across nations and and various levels of government and and private and corporations. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. um, those seeking to solve the problem are also causing it, and I think that's one of the the biggest um, drags on solving um, climate change because we haven't got someone we can go out and bomb. Um, and the fourth one is that policies discount the future irrationally, which we're certainly doing. We're making it um, infinitely harder at the moment for those down the line to solve because of our lack of action. 
Yeah, I, you've put mm. it brilliantly, and I will also say that I I didn't swim from Manchester to Adelaide. You know, I flew. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah. I took I took the coach all around, sort of Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, but that doesn't really matter. The simple fact is, I put another ten ton of um, carbon dioxide and, into the atmosphere, and there you you get into the other issue with, that adds to this wicked problem of cognitive dissonance, where you've got two incompatible realities. You should stop using fossil fuels dead, but you still need to run your ordinary life, and you need to fly if you want to get over here. You, you need and coal to... miners have to pay the mortgage. Mm, yeah, you know. Yeah, and and look what's going to happen in Hazelwood because no government was willing to grasp the nettle and come up with a transition plan. Mm. So we're we're in a really difficult situation and it's hard to get people inspired to work on climate change when there are no easy solutions. So if you want to solve patriarchy, you just stop men acting like dicks and you stop some women colluding in it. And it's, it's quote, relatively simple, unquote. I mean, I'm, I'm... Exaggerating. <laughs> yes, the women here are laughing. <laughs> so, Mark, let's let's look at what concrete actions. Let's be positive. What concrete actions yeah. can people take? So, I think people need to worry slightly less about their carbon footprint, and I would say that, given what I just said, and and think a lot more about the political footprint that they have. We here in the West have enormous political advantages we have freedom of speech we have freedom of assembly we have freedom of information uh, we live in formal democracies that politicians have to listen to especially at election time That's so an excellent one i hadn't heard of the, the political footprint really good concept yeah um thank you thank you i should i'll put that in the book um so the crucial thing is though that if you try and do this on your own you'll burn out trust me i know so you, I would like to say to your listeners, there are things they can do around using the Freedom of Information Act to get information that their local politicians at a council level or a state level or even a federal level don't want them to know. And you can't expect newspapers to do this. With very few exceptions, the mainstream media is useless on climate change. I reckon the only few... There's... A, there's um, Peter Hannum and especially Lenore Taylor, but they're talking about the national and international. So all of the stuff that local governments promise to do and state governments promise to do and aren't doing or are doing too slowly, you can winkle that information out by using the Freedom of Information Act. The other thing that people should do is if a group is not functioning and if a group looks like it's going to go down the toilet they need to try and intervene, not necessarily sort of in public telling the facilitator they're an idiot, but take the facilitator aside and say, you know, that last meeting, it ended in a very bad way. And the three new people who we saw there, they've not come back. And, you know, maybe we need to do things a little bit differently to, a, to keep the people who come to one or two meetings. Maybe that should be our success metric. Mm -hmm. And then the facilitator will say, well, what's your big idea then? And then you can gently put some of the things that, you know, I've talked about, but also people will have better ideas on their own. We need to start challenging what I call the smugosphere, the sort of the complacent ideas within the climate change movement, because we're very good at pointing the figure at government, finger at governments and corporations for not changing what they do. But I've seen very little innovation in the way that 
left-wing or green groups do their business. Okay, so and I think that needs to change. Those last and two the people are going to change it is us. Sorry. We're the ones we've been waiting for. Th- those last two were um, more with people who were active in groups. What about individuals? Uh, like I'm speaking to business group very, next week. But to have a political footprint as an individual, I mean, yeah, you can write letters to the newspaper, you can write letters to your MP, uh, but you'll burn out. Um, I think, I mean, I, I know I have, and I've been a sort of a one man band in Manchester. Um, and after a few years you think, you know what, this is, so yeah, I mean, there are things you can do, as I said, letters to the editor, letters, newspaper, conversations with people at work. But if you're actually going to make change at your place of work or your place of worship or your place where you play sport, you're going to need other people on board because overthrowing sort of established habit is something that one person can't do on their own. They have to get together with other people. And it doesn't mean you all have to sort of, you know, join the same political party or get arrested or whatever together. But you are going to need to engage with other people who don't necessarily agree with you on every last thing. But you, so you're going to need some social skills. You're going to need to learn how to listen to people um, and to learn to disagree with people on some things but still work with them on others. Hmm. And you're going to learn how to, have to learn how to sustain yourself and each other. And otherwise, you, as I said, you'll burn out, as I keep saying. I think that's about the 18th mention <laughs> of burnout. <laughs> There's a theme happening here. <laughs> I've lost count. <laughs> now, Mark, you've um, also got a book that's happening at the moment, is- I understand. Yeah, I, it's procrastination from my thesis. We, I'm going to have to ask you to edit this bit out in case my supervisor, by some miracle, will listen. <laughs> I'm, no, I, I am writing my thesis, which is on the Australian coal industry and its allies and, and what's called um, – well, anyway, let's not go there because we'll be here all day. But the other, the other book that I'm putting together is, is partly a compilation of – the blog posts that I've been writing for the last seven or eight years. And a lot of them come from a place where I'll be in a meeting that has low energy or doesn't achieve its goals. And I'll think to myself, so how could this meeting be organized differently with the same amount of money, the same amount of time and the same venue, the same sort of format of the room to achieve better goals. And then I write a blog post showing how it could be done differently and that usually sinks without trace, though sometimes I get some sort of comments, people going, oh, wow, I wish the meeting had been like that, or whatever. And so I, in over the last sort of eight, ten years, I've tackled the questions of, well, how could a march be done differently? How could a rally, big or small, be done differently? How could a, a speaker's Q&A be done differently, as I alluded to earlier? And what I'm doing is I'm stitching all of these together um, and saying, look, if we want to increase participation of new people and old people in our e- events and meetings and camps, here are some simple ways that we could go about it. They don't cost a lot of money. They just mean simply, or any money, they simply mean that we change the way that we do things. We, we change the measure of success. And so the book should only take because it's largely a cut and paste job and, and a few bridging bits and pieces i'm going to then give it to some people and get them to sort of smooth out the bumpy edges it should only take till christmas to get done oh, i don't have present. a name for it sorry a christmas present a christmas present well i hope so and 
And then the idea would be that people just loot the bits that are useful to them. They don't have to accept my quite cynical take on social movements. They don't have to use words like smugosphere or emotathons or ego fodder. If there are valuable ideas for them in there about how to energize people, how to brainstorm in a, in a decent way instead of a really tokenistic way, then great. Um, I'm not looking for acolytes, believe it or not. I'm just looking for us to do better than we have been because we, we are not doing very well, in my opinion, in, certainly in the United Kingdom. I'm not really qualified to say in Australia, but from what I've seen over the last sort of six, seven weeks, it doesn't look much better here, but I could, you know, I could be wrong. Mark, we are out of time. Thank you so much for your time today. It's Thank been great you. talking with you. Yes, thanks, Mark. It's been very informative. And if you'd like to hear more from Mark, you can view his extensive library of articles in The Conversation and read his blogging insights on, on the Manchester Climate Monthly blog. You can also download a podcast of his earlier interview from the BZE or 3CR websites. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us with the Twitter handle BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.